Hi, everybody. Welcome to another show of the Practical CMO. I call this show Amazon Friend or Foe. And with the multiple pandemic impacts on many businesses, a shift to digital marketing and, and digital engagement with customers is definitely a priority for many CEOs and marketing execs. Now, one bridge to be crossed is the shift or addition of e-commerce channels for products and service delivery. And a second bridge comes right after the decision to move online. Should you consider an Amazon, a friend or a foe as part of your e-commerce strategy? So there are really two parts to understanding an Amazon decision. The first, an analysis of strategic fit. And the second, if you decide to use Amazon's reach and capabilities is what form of a relationship to have with them. Now, these are two big topics and we're gonna cover them in two consecutive podcasts. So I've got a great guest today, William Thickman, founder and chief strategy officer at Amazia. Amazia is based in Los Angeles and assists brands in navigating the complex and highly nuanced world of the Amazon marketplace to ensure their clients maximize revenue, retain full control of their brand integrity and improve customer experiences. And I'll let William fill in a little bit more, but William, it seems like You've got a 16-year career dedicated to helping hundreds of brands thrive on the most critical e-commerce channel, and you've managed over $200 million worth of product sales in the marketplace and achieved, on the average, 35% year-over-year revenue growth for brands in partnership with Amazia. You've got a background uh, BA from uh, California State University, um, Northridge. So I think you're the perfect guy to speak to this Amazon issue, William. We're looking for somebody who's really got hands-on experience with this. Clearly, your background speaks to that, but tell us in a little bit more on why you started Amazia and how you built that business. Sure. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I've been doing Amazon since before we could buy practical goods on Amazon. I started selling college textbooks way back when. But uh, really started professionally selling on Amazon, I'd say close to 16 years ago, actually selling consumer goods. For probably the first decade, it was just a really almost a digital swap meet of lots of vendors showing up and selling whatever they can get their hands on. And we were one of those vendors. Not a vendor to Amazon, but a really a merchant or a seller on Amazon selling whatever we can get our hands on. There was no rhyme or reason. There wasn't much strategy. And about five years ago, we had a brand that was a fiber eyelash mascara that was having some challenges on Amazon. Other people were selling her stuff in the gray market. Some of it was even counterfeit. And it's a mascara going in people's eyes. So you can imagine the concern for her as the brand owner. She kind of came to me. We were connected through another organization called Entrepreneurs Organization. And she was connected to me there and just said, hey, you know, you're an Amazon guy. I got these Amazon problems. Can you help me figure this out? I said, you know, I, this is a problem for a lot of brands. I think I can take a stab at it. And so we started cleaning up her market by removing unauthorized sellers, trademark violators, counterfeit sellers, people that just shouldn't have been selling her stuff in the first place. And it took us a couple months, but we were able to clean it up and get her quite a lot of control of her brand on Amazon and then start doing all the marketing and optimization and all the other stuff that you really can't do when you have all these random people in your way. Yeah, did that with her, then did it with about five other brands that we were just reselling that turned into more exclusive relationships the same way and said, whoa, there's a business here. There's definitely brands that want to have their, they want to participate in the market, but 
when you have people that you don't know and can't identify who are violating laws and misusing your trademarks or flat out selling counterfeits or reselling used product and claiming it's new, it gets in the way of you being successful. Right. So that was kind of the, the pivot five years ago. And then that's been the model we've been in for, for the last five years. Today, we manage 50, 60 brands in the same capacity. And I love this sort of uh, the business model where you, you solved somebody's immediate problem and then realized that, boy, a lot of people have these challenges, right? And, you know, as I, as I work with businesses of virtually all sizes and across lots of different markets, the issues and the opportunities of going online, but more particularly viewing Amazon as either a friend or a foe, just seem to be sort of pop up all the time, right? Even the most recent McKinsey report, which came out a week ago, talks about the evolution of B2B sales and marketing, right? And basically said, you can't ignore this, right? You're going to have to figure out how to be more digital, do better digital marketing, more digital forms of customer engagement, and then look at e-commerce as an opportunity as well. But when companies are going through that decision process about, you know, viewing Amazon and trying or versus kind of developing their own e-commerce channels, what do you think they should be thinking about? What are those key factors that should be part of that management discussion, William? Well, the first decision is, am I going to sell to Amazon or on Amazon? To Amazon is 1P, which is referred to as first party, which means you're really a vendor selling to Amazon as a retailer. The second option is 3P, whether you do it through a partner like Amazia or through, you know, there's many people in our industry or on your own store selling on Amazon is kind of the first decision. If you go 1P selling to Amazon, they buy your stuff and then they control it from there on. So you don't get, you know, you don't get the same minimum advertised pricing control. You don't get the same customer service control. You lose quite a lot of control because you now have a, a, a retailer essentially retailing your product. If you go in a 3P model, you retain a lot of that control. And especially if you do it with a smaller partner, you know, not an Amazon, but, you know, a professional Amazon partner, again, like us or any other you know, there's probably hundreds of people out there like us where you can actually have a relationship where you have a team that picks up the phone, where you have someone building this business together with you, or you do it in your own store. And then again, in your own store, it could be managed again by someone like us, an Amazon uh -huh. agency, or you're managing it yourself with a team. So that's kind of the first decision is, you know, do I sell to Amazon? Do I sell on Amazon? The other main thing to think about is what type of product do you have? I'll tell brands, you got to be fulfilled by Amazon. So there's something called FBA, which is fulfilled by Amazon. And that's what enables the prime badge and all that stuff. And I often tell brands, if you're not FBA, you're not selling on Amazon because they oftentimes prioritize things that are in their fulfillment centers to win the buy box and be on that first page of search and all that. So it's kind of like, if you're not going to be FBA, you're not really selling on Amazon. So we got to think about, okay, what type of product is it? Do you, you know, are you selling stoves? Are you selling chocolate that's meltable in a fulfillment center and it's not going to qualify? Or are you selling supplements that are going to do well in a fulfillment center? And so we got to think about what's the product and are you a candidate for fulfillment by Amazon? It's kind of the next biggest thing. So if you were a manufacturer and you offered a mix of custom products and kind of off-the-shelf configurations, it's really the off-the-shelf configurations that would be candidates for fulfillment, right? 
yeah, custom is not going to work, right? If you're making custom printed t-shirts or custom anything, you know, engraved something, that's not a candidate for fulfillment by Amazon. You need something that's replicatable that you could ship dozens or hundreds or thousands of units into a fulfillment center and then they sell, you know, so iPhone cases are a good thing. Water bottles might be a good thing that can be done, but you don't want custom engraved address signs are probably not going to be a good fit. Right. Yeah. So one of my manufacturing companies that I've worked with is in the heat exchanger business and they, let's use them as an example, our case, a little kind of a mini case study here. So they have small heat exchangers, you know, small uh, footprint that are virtually kind of off the shelf products for craft brewers, for small manufacturing facilities and things like that. If they were going to consider this, what do they have to do to kind of prep themselves for potentially the 1P or the 3P model? So what's kind of the lead in for them to make sure that if they choose to do this, they're going to do it well? Okay. So first off, if you're going to go the 1P model, there's not a place you sign up on Amazon and you become 1P. You got to be invited by a buyer in that category to even have an account opened up for you. So that's the first thing is unless you know the buyer, unless you have you know, they've been knocking on your door, wanting you to sell on Amazon. You, you don't just sign up for the one P side. So very likely you're going to start off on the three P side by again, either selling to a third party like us who then manages the distribution of the product or starting your own store and starting to sell yourselves. And then after some time, Amazon sees the data. They may come knocking on your door and say, Hey, you know, we see you've been having some good success on the three P side. Now we'd like to buy your product come over to the one piece side. So that very likely happens. So I would say it's just that, you know, that part of it first. And the other thing is you got to look at, you know, packaging. I don't know how the heat exchangers are packaged, if they're like ready to go for e-commerce or if they're usually a thing that's sold by distributors, but you got to think about selling units one by one, packaging and also customer service. Is this something a, a consumer will have enough information on to install and deal with on their own? Or is this something they're going to need support and like real technical stuff on to, to deal with? Mm -hmm. uh, that's the other thing to think about because then you don't want to see, re you know, returns and all these other things. Amazon will actually shut you down for it if you get too many returns. So you want to be able to control for that stuff. Sure. How about pricing? I mean, you know, pricing control, I think is important to a lot of companies as much as you can kind of set a market price. But what should they be thinking about planning for relative to that part of their marketing model? Yeah. So pricing comes to, you know, you can't really just set a fixed price. You've got to establish a clear reseller policy and you've got to establish a clear minimum advertised price policy in the business. And then if you're running your own store on Amazon, you would adhere to your own minimum advertised price policy, uh -huh. whatever that specify. So let's say that heat exchangers price is 150 bucks. Then you would expect, you know, if 150 is the minimum advertised price, then you and all your retailers would be expected to advertise at that same price. Right. Now, as, as far as pricing, we generally find that things on Amazon can actually be sold for a little bit more than you'd find in traditional e-commerce channels. And it helps to offset the fees a little bit that you're paying Amazon for the marketing of it. But it's, it's because the Amazon consumer is very loyal to Amazon. They're not going to shop 
the entire internet to save a few bucks. Uh -huh. They're generally there, you know, they're a higher demographic. They're there for convenience. They're a busy, most likely a busy mom or dad that, you know, is going to want that convenience factor. And so they're not going to mind paying a few extra bucks. They're not even going to search for that savings across the whole internet. And so we often see things that we're able to sell above minimum advertised price or above retail price simply because there's some elasticity there. The consumer is willing to pay a little bit more for that convenience, that shipping yeah. reliability, that return ability, all of those comforts of buying online. Okay. You know that uh, going back to that McKinsey study, William, they talked about how companies are willing to buy, you know, uh, products worth, you know, up to a million dollars online, right? I think it would change it. That's a, I think that a lot of people would go, really? That seems like a big number for an e-commerce transaction. But are, are you seeing any kind of changes in the product mix between, you know, things that we would consider consumer products versus more B2B products? We do a lot of consumer stuff. So my experience might be more consumer driven, but there, it starts to blend. We have a brand that is... Um, it's like an auto body repair tool product. And it's, you know, I would say mostly bought by auto body shops and collision centers and maybe some at home do it DIY, you know, people. But that's one example I would say of, of something that is vastly a, traditionally a B2B product mm -hmm. that is now really available in a consumer market. Because at the end of the day, that product's being bought by a guy who's going to use it on a car, right? And right. at the end of the day, it's not a company or an institution that's going to use that product. That product's going to be used by one person at a time. Now, maybe that's different to some sort of industrial pump or some other thing that's super specialized and it's truly going to be used by the company versus one guy. Right. Uh, but this auto body product I'm thinking of is, is really meant to be used by one person you know, it's a hand tool, ultimately, even though it's traditionally sold, you know, in the B2B capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason it can be successful is because at the end of the day, it's a couple hundred dollar tool. Probably it's actually like around 500 bucks. It has yeah. very clear marketing that shows what this tool does, the features and benefits. And, you know, if you're looking for that tool that does that function, you're going to find it on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's successful, but maybe some more specialized stuff like, I don't know, some kind of like plumbing equipment or some sort of like, you know, something super specialized. If we can get defined and, and you know, optimize the keywords around what this product is, maybe the brand name, the model number, you know, stuff that can ultimately get it found, then I suppose there's no limit in, in where it can be bought. If, you know, before this could be ordered, let's say out of a Granger industrial catalog. Right. And even if we're expensive, 10, 20, $50,000, theoretically, why wouldn't a buyer buy it the same way out of a digital catalog if they would out of a Granger catalog? It's no sure. different, it's just digital. Right. Do you think there's um, uh, sort of a uh, misunderstanding though in the marketplace about what kinds of products would actually work? I mean, I, I'm thinking that, you know, for like an industrial product, you know, you talked about that part for uh, auto repair, Someone might say, well, you know, I, if, if I sold a couple a month, was, is that enough to sort of be interesting to, to build a program out, even a 3P program, right? 
versus like I'm selling, you know, thousands a week, right? There's sort of the quantity uh, bias over the, uh, in terms of the volume, right? That there's some a perception around that that might turn somebody off in terms of even thinking about Amazon. Here's the thing I think you and maybe others have, have not thought about is it's not necessarily about the ROI on Amazon, apples for apples in that actual market, because here's what happens. Let's say you're, you know, let's say the market potential of that body shop part is only a couple units a month at 500 bucks. And, you know, the potential is only a couple thousand bucks of sales. But let's say that there's various versions of the product that are in the Amazon catalog already, because you have all these random stay-at-home people or other people that are just flipping it, or they got one as a gift, they throw it up on Amazon, they list it inaccurately, they put a wrong description, wrong information, or they don't know how to deliver service and their product gets terrible product reviews. What happens is at the end of the day, your product may already be on Amazon, even though you're not controlling the market. And so where everybody's missing the boat is that Amazon is today the most prominent and the most viewed product catalog hands down to any other product catalog out there. And so if you now have product in a catalog that's wrong or inaccurate, misleading or, or not managed properly, and because of that, your brand's reputation is suffering, we got to mm-hmm. ask what that's worth because it, yeah. may not, it may not be about the couple units of sales because if, if your products are on Amazon because someone else was selling it, it's got terrible reviews and you're knocking on a retailer's door to get into them and they're not they're saying no, but they're not telling you it's because your reviews are terrible on Amazon. What's that worth? Right. Yeah. So well, that's what you got to think about is when, when you leave it up to the market, your results may vary as, as to what your product looks like and is represented like in the market. When you control it and you own it in-house, then you can actually influence how your product's represented. And that's a big deal. So it may not always be about the, the incremental revenue we can make here. It may be about it's a public catalog and Mm -hmm. you got to manage it. Right. Well, it's great. We've got a good start to this um, conversation. It's uh, really critical for a lot of businesses today. William, I'd like to talk about, so that issue of loss of control and uh, over your brand and your pricing. You know, when you and I first met, we discovered that a product that I had a little bit of uh, connection with was actually on Amazon. And I'm not even sure that the, the product organization realized that one of their dealers or distributors had actually put it on Amazon. And when we looked at it, you had a couple of thoughts around it, right? Relative to the quality of the graphics, well, relative to whether the parts were relevant, right? The, the model numbers were still current, things like that. Let's talk about that issue of sort of loss of control and or how do you keep control? I think that's really a critical one for a lot of businesses. Yeah. Well, if you're a brand and you're selling to, once you sell to any other party, whether it be a retailer, a distributor, an international distributor, you know, even some, we look at, you know, some brands that sell to Best Buy and you think, wow, Best Buy, reputable company, what's the problem? Well, they take all their returns and they palletize them and they send them off to the liquidator. Well, what does the liquidator do with it? Liquidator sells it to the little guy selling out of the garage. Where's the little guy out of the garage selling? Amazon and eBay. So now you get potentially, you know, your product, let's say you're selling a, I don't know, a product that has a, a cord with it and a consumer out there, their cord burned out or they lost a cord. What do they do? They order a unit, they take the cord out, they return it back to Amazon. 
Well, now that product gets liquidated without the cord to the liquidator. Liquidator sells that product without the cord to the guy in the garage. The guy in the garage buys it and goes, oh, this is a cool electronic. I'm gonna put it as new on Amazon. You put it on new. And then the next consumer gets it and it's missing a cord. Guess mm. what that consumer does? They leave a bad review. They say, hey, I got a product that was missing a cord or was missing a bolt or was missing a whatever. And you see this across Amazon all the time, very easy. You go on Amazon, you hit the reviews, go to the one-star reviews specifically and read some of those on your brand. You'll see people saying things like, I got the wrong item, it was damaged, wrong color, too big, too small, old, this thing was clearly used. So there's very clear feedback that consumers are giving where these situations are happening. So how do you control it? You just gotta control it. I mean, you gotta establish clear reseller policies of who's gonna be able to be in the market. And then you gotta build in mechanisms for enforcing and making sure that that's actually happening. Because mm -hmm. like I said earlier, I mean, there's situations happening happens all the time. Brands will say, well, I don't care. I'm, I'm not on the Amazon market. Well, your brand is, you know, whether you're not there directly, your distributors and dealers and retailers are still turning around and, and selling in the market. So you may as well be there and control it because it's your brand at the end of yeah. the day. Well, and you've re redefined what loss of control really is. I mean, a lot of organizations, I think, are always concerned when someone else reps or, or distributes their product, right? About what happens after that or how do they represent it but you're talking about a whole set of different downstream impacts to that brand depending on the the reseller or the distributor or the dealer's behavior right, right. and um yeah Here, here's another common scenario we we sometimes see a product usually we're enforcing something where someone's selling under minimum advertised price on amazon and we'll talk to a brand and they'll say well I don't care. My, no one sells my product under price. Everybody's overpriced. Well, that's a problem too, because here I have some AirPod headphones here and I paid 200 bucks for them, right? But if I had found these on Amazon and they were price gouged and they were listed at $1,000, and obviously we know what AirPods are worth, but let's say you had an item that you don't commonly buy. You had no idea if 1,000 was right or if 200 was right for that product, because that could happen very easily you buy it for a thousand, you have a different set of expectations for that product than when you did a 200. And so let's say it's a, let's say I'm buying, I don't know, a hammer or something. And normally this hammer's 20 bucks, but I look on Amazon and it's 89 bucks. I have, I have no idea what this hammer should cost. So I end up buying it for 89. Well, maybe my expectation at 89 is a whole lot different than it would have been at 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, that still leads to negative reviews, bad reviews, and, and ultimately product reputation and brand reputation because that brand is not controlled. So maybe the brand doesn't care that their stuff's being sold for more and that somebody's making some money out there, but, but ultimately it, it does not create a good consumer experience when it's not as it was intended by the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these downstream, it's all sort of thinking about unintended consequences, right? And I think a lot of organizations, that's what, that's what makes them nervous about Amazon because they don't, it's hard for them to sort of even envision all the good things that can happen or the negative things that can happen. And then, they're, and then they feel like they would have limited ability to actually control that. And I think a lot of those decisions turn into non-decisions, right? They just don't decide proactively to do anything, right? It's sort of, they fall back into business as usual. Right. It's dangerous. I mean, you know, it's getting easier and easier to sell on Amazon, which means more and more people come into the market. 
as that happens, you're going to get more and more people that don't know what they're doing or list it wrong or, or completely defraud consumers because they don't care like selling, you know, electronics without the cord or whatever missing and knowingly doing so or selling, mm -hmm. you know, there's coffee machines that get resold that have already been used and have had coffee run through them. Can you imagine being that brand where a consumer opens up the box and that machine has clearly run coffee in it? Like, are you going to want to run your coffee through that machine? Right. No. So there's scenarios like that that need to be controlled, uh, but it starts with establishing some clear policies, making decisions on, you know, what do you want? Who's allowed to sell on the market? At what price do we want them selling this? And then what are we going to do if they don't abide? Right. If they disregard our policies, are we going to, are we going to stop selling to them? And sometimes those are big customers that brands have to make big decisions on. Yeah. Um, we've certainly had some brands that said, wow, I never knew, but my two biggest customers are the ones ruining this Amazon market. I, I am not in the position to pull my business from my two biggest customers. Yeah. So then it's like, okay, what do you do? Well, you know, maybe we come up with some other strategies or tactics to, to block them from, from Amazon, but yeah. Well, so wouldn't it be better to be proactive? I mean, you talked about sort of reseller policies and procedures and things like that. Wouldn't it be better? I mean, that's got to be a part of the conversation sooner or later, probably sooner, given the way that e-commerce is really taking off from all the sort of pandemic-driven behavior changes. Yeah, that's right there. I would say that's the second thing after you decide how you're going to approach the market, how you're going to you know, tackle it strategically, 1P, 3P, fulfilled, non-fulfilled. Once you make all those decisions, I think you then go to, okay, what's our reseller policy going to be? Who are we going to allow to sell in the market? Are we going to be the only ones? Or are we going to allow our customers to sell there at the same time? Or are we just going to let our customers sell? Or are we going to let whoever wants to sell as long as they abide by our minimum advertised price? Those right. are all decisions we've, we've got to make yeah. very early on. And, and like, to be honest, we don't even take on a brand unless they have all that policy clearly laid out. Now, if they don't, we help them craft all that, of course. Right. But it's kind of our requirement for taking on a brand. It's, it's your rules. It's like, if you're going to build a house, it's your blueprint. Mm -hmm. it, here's how you're going to build the house. You're going to use these blueprints. You don't just, you know, start hammering two by fours together and expect the house to, to come up. Right. To William, do you see a lot of companies where they sell direct on Amazon and then allow their resellers to also sell on Amazon? I mean, you know, everyone would say, well, that's channel conflict. You can't do that. But what's your view? I mean, you've done that. You've looked at lots and lots of products and success stories over the last, you know, bunch of years. What do you think about selling direct and also allowing your resellers to sell on the same platform? Yeah. I mean, I've directly seen all versions of that, you know, working well and not working well. I think overall in the long term, brands want to have more direct margin. And so if a reseller is not offering a lot of value, if they're just a guy out of the garage that's flipping some product, they're ultimately not providing a lot of value. Now, if they're really optimizing all the pages and investing into advertising and really pushing you forward, then that makes sense. But if they're just another reseller out of the garage or a little mom and pop shop that on the side does a little bit of Amazon selling to, to keep things flowing, they're not really offering a ton of value. And so in the long term, I think brands will figure out who's offering value, who's not, and will cut their list down, down, down till eventually it's either them, one key retailer selling. But sometimes we do see where a brand says, hey, 
you know, my agreement with this retailer says we got to allow them to sell on Amazon. And if we don't, they're going to pull the whole business, which may or may not be true. And then sometimes we see where that agreement exists, but it, the retail business is a sham. It's, it's kind of, you know, 99% of the business is really going through Amazon. And yeah, they got these, you know, there was a prominent chain here in LA, their, their beauty store, they sell high-end beauty products. They probably have 10 stores around LA here. And they're all very fancy, shiny, high lease stores. But the reality is probably 90% of their business goes through Amazon. And so if you took Amazon away, those stores are vastly unprofitable, but they Mm -hmm. are front that allows many of these high-end brands to want to partner with these stores and get into those stores. But what they don't know is that they're selling under five other IDs on Amazon under a different name. And so now are you really selling to a boutique brick and mortar retailer or are you really selling to an Amazon retailer? I would say if 90% of the business is flowing through Amazon, you're really just selling to an Amazon retailer and the stores are just a distraction. In fact, that's yeah. how, I don't know if you know that, that's how Zappos started. When Zappos, if you ever read uh, Tony Shea's uh, book, when Zappos started, big brands like Nike, Adidas, nobody wanted to sell to an e-commerce retailer. And so they created a fake front, like 200 square foot a shoe store with a giant warehouse in the back. And then all the brands wanted to sell to them because they were a shoe store. Well, they didn't know that 99.9% was going out the back door through e-commerce. But that's changed today. I think, you know, brands understand more that e-commerce is here and it's a significant factor. It's here to stay. But, but still, we see it's happening. Still, we see brands even today that go, wow, well, this retailer is very important for me. They, they do blah, blah, blah. But we know 99% of the revenue goes, goes out the door to Amazon. So mm-hmm. how important are they really? Yeah. And, you know, your comment about sort of Amazon being the largest catalog in the world makes me think about how buyer journeys have changed, right? And I saw a model in the last couple of weeks that was just incredibly complicated about even sort of a B2B buyer's journey. And certainly somewhere along the line, there's going to be some online touch points. But do you see Amazon, I mean, Amazon as the kind of sales and fulfillment versus Amazon as the digital catalog. I mean, are those separate forms of value just to support a a buyer's journey? Well, ideally it's all one. Ideally your catalog's in good shape and because it's in good shape, you end up selling a lot of product at the same time. Is that what you mean by that or? Yeah, I'm just saying where people might use Amazon for education, information gathering, look at product reviews, but then, you know, go buy it through a traditional channel, just kind of the opposite of kind of what we talked about with Zappos. Oh, yeah. So I actually had one time I was at Home Goods. I don't know where, where you're at. Do you have Home Goods in your? Mm-hmm. In your sure. Yeah. Um, home Goods is really a, I would call it a discount retailer of home stuff, right? They're not like a pure one imports. They're not like a, a Nordstrom's home store, for example. And I saw a guy in the aisle. And he's got this item in his hand he's looking at, and he's got a cell phone in the other hand, and it's like a cheese grater. It's nothing significant, right? He's making a $10 purchase. But I walked by and I was shocked myself because on his phone was Amazon. And so he, he picked up this cheese grater in the store, but he wanted to read the reviews and the features and the benefits and all that on Amazon. And once, and at that point he could have put, if he wasn't satisfied with what he saw on Amazon, he could put the cheese grater back and grab another one and read about it. And that's the buyer's journey. You know, it, it's like the digital supports the in-store 
journey because they're using consumers are using this catalog. I always knew it was used for like high-end purchases, but I was mm-hmm. shocked it was being used for a $10 cheese grater. And I was like, wow, that makes sense. Like you, if your Amazon catalog, you know, it was cleaned up and accurate and descriptive and beautiful and the pictures are right and the marketing is right. Guess what the consumer behavior is? He would have walked to the checkout with that cheese grater, right? But if he looked on Amazon and the reviews were terrible and the pictures were, were bad and there wasn't good marketing, he'd probably put the cheese grater down and find the next one to buy. Right. That's that online, offline support. They influence each other. And that's, if nothing else, that's one of the main reasons to get Amazon right is to support your offline channels better. Yeah. Well, and I think that's probably something that doesn't really come to mind for a lot of companies when they're thinking about, you know, making a move on Amazon or not, just thinking about it as a product catalog, right? And part of that buyer's journey. But I think a lot of products today, if you try to describe a linear buyer's journey, there's no such thing any longer. There may have never been such a thing as a linear journey, right? But today it's all over the place. And I mean, you look at sort of uh, page views and time on websites and whatever. I mean, people are jumping around all over the place, right? And you can tell that just because of the metrics that we're seeing in terms of page views and time on site. Sometimes, you know, some agencies will tell me, well, if you're getting 30 seconds to a minute on site, you're actually doing pretty good. It's like, gee, that seems like it's pretty short, right? But maybe they were only looking for one piece of information and went somewhere else to kind of fill in the gap. So I think this conversation has kind of helped companies think about how to uh, another value of being on Amazon. Now, look, Amazia has done such a great job bringing so many companies on. Tell me what you think the three key success factors for somebody to move into a 3P relationship with Amazon and using um, Amazia and how you might actually help them. What are, the, what are those three success factors that they need to keep in mind as they kind of go through this decision uh, matrix? Yeah. Well, one is you got to be a real company and a real brand. So I would say if you're not doing at least a million bucks outside of Amazon in sales, you're just not going to have enough eyeballs. There's, there's a direct correlation between what you can do on Amazon versus what you're doing outside in the business. And so our minimum is at least a, a million, but ideally like our core customer is doing at least five to 10 million outside of Amazon because then you're going to be able to capture at least a couple million on Amazon and it's meaningful and it's worth investing into and it's worth putting effort into. So I'd say one is, you know, you're a real brand and you have a viable business outside of Amazon. The biggest mistake people make is just thinking like Amazon's this giant market. I'm going to throw my stuff up there and everybody's going to show up and buy it. And I'm going to, that's where I'm going to get all my sales, but it absolutely correlates with that. So one is that two is, you got to set up your strategy and all that right. You got to pick whether one piece right for you or three piece right for you, fulfillment, get your inventory in the right place. Do all those things to set up the logistics, the supply side, the strategy of getting ready to sell on Amazon. And then three is you got to be found just so, you know, not much different than your traditional website business. I bet if you're not a real brand, you throw a website up there, nobody's going to find you and buy you. And if you throw a website up and you don't have the right shipping or you, you know, don't have the right fulfillment and stuff like that in place, again, no one's going to buy. So it's kind of the same thought process you would have around a website. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing was to get found. So again, if you're not doing, you know, in the web world, you would have like, you know, your Google ads and all your blogging, whatever, however customers are finding you on the Amazon side, 
you have what's called sponsored products, which are your Amazon PPC that's running, but it starts by first being optimized as a page. So you don't want to drive traffic to a page that sucks. It's not going to convert. You've got to have great images, great content, great story, great branding, all that stuff ironed out before you turn on the advertising. So I would mm-hmm. say step, step three is just getting found, building a page, you know, building your digital store on Amazon. There's something called storefronts, but I would argue on Amazon, you have each product is a storefront technically because customers search for products. They don't really go into the Apple store and search around. They go straight for exactly what they want to find right. in terms of product. So, so I often say the product page is your store. Now there is a storefront, which is kind of hidden on Amazon. Maybe we dive into that on, on the next uh, podcast, but there, the searches happen really for the product. And so you want to make sure every product is optimized. Mm-hmm. Those would kind of be the main three things. Be a real brand, get your strategy dialed in and, and make all the right choices for your brand to, to approach the Amazon market, right? And then three build a nice looking page with good marketing, make sure it's optimized. And then four would probably be turn on your advertising and run it efficiently as you would as well. Right. Okay. You know, and, and we call the show the practical CMO. So I really appreciate your practical guidance in those areas. Cause I think that's what our kind of listeners always appreciate. You know, we haven't really talked about Amazia and how you can help people be successful. And we kind of talked a little bit about, some of the support and the services that you offer, but I'd like to have people understand, I mean, because this, even the three P approach seems like they would benefit from somebody who's done it successfully before, rather than trying to sort of do it yourself. Right. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about how Amazia helps companies and kind of helps ensure their success? Yeah. So we typically partner with a brand, like I said, that's doing, usually at least a couple million of business outside of Amazon. Very likely their products are ready on Amazon. Either they're being sold there by retailers or distributors or themselves, but there's kind of this chaos going on on Amazon that needs to be uh, cleaned up and controlled. So we start by helping the brand establish clear reseller policies, defining minimum advertised price, the reseller policy, who can and can't sell, you know, kind of the rules of the road, we build the blueprint of what success on Amazon is going to look like. And then we actually build the home for them. So then we actually either recreate the product pages. Usually we're not going to destroy them because if it's a brand that's been on Amazon for a while and and it's got a decent product, it's probably going to have good product reviews. So we don't want to lose that. Mm -hmm. Those are pretty hard to come by these days. So we actually want to leave as many product reviews as possible. So we're going to leave the pages. We're just going to remodel them. And so we're going to redo the images, redo the content, redo the titles, all that stuff. But the most important part is the reviews. The reviews are kind of the the foundation of that page. And so we never want to destroy that, but we just want to remodel on top of it. We'll do that. And then at the same time, position the inventory, buy the inventory, position it, you know, do whatever we need to do to, to be prepared to actually sell on Amazon. So Amazia really can offer a turnkey services for somebody who says, hey, you know what? I think I want to do this. I want the benefit of a partner who has done this before, will save me from making a lot of mistakes that I would make on my own. I mean, that's really what I hear you saying. Yeah. And we, we work with customers in different ways. There's different ways we can engage. You know, sometimes 
we're being paid for services and we're acting in an agency capacity. And sometimes we're acting in a partnership capacity and we're, we become their Amazon distributor that knows the market and knows how to do business in this channel. And that's all we do, by the way. You know, Amazon's all we do and all we've done for you know, nearly 16 years now. So we kind of know our way around the market pretty well. And oftentimes you often hear, you know, some people will say like, uh, this one's always interesting. Oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm hiring so-and-so because they worked at Amazon or I'm using this agency because they worked at Amazon and the founder worked at Amazon. And a lot of times if you've worked at Amazon, you did a very specific role and know nothing about selling on Amazon. And so where we're different is that we've been selling on Amazon. We have a couple hundred million of real transactions on Amazon. There's a difference between being a category manager at Amazon or a business development person at Amazon and actually making transactions on Amazon. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting trend we see in our industry. A lot of people that have worked at Amazon that will spend a couple of years out there and then they'll start up at their own agency and they know nothing about selling on Amazon. They yeah. just work. Yeah. Uh, they just, but it's, it, they think it's sort of, uh, it's a good brand halo, right? Good credentials to have, even if they, their job was quite different. Yeah. But it's complete, you know, just cause you were, a business development person bringing in brands to, to sign up and sell on Amazon doesn't mean you actually know what it's like to navigate on the other side and deal with Amazon when they refuse to accept your upload of images. Yeah. That's different. You know, you've never dealt with that in your, in your life. Yeah. So that, that's always an interesting one we see, but yeah, we, we manage brands either, either we're buying the product and managing it for them that way as a distributor or they're buying our service and we're acting as an agency. But either way, there's always the right, what I think is the right fit for the brand. Like there mm-hmm. is a clear right strategy and a reason why that's the right strategy. And that's really where my expertise comes in. That's where we start every discussion is, okay, what are you doing? Where do you wanna go? Why do you wanna go there? And what do we gotta do along the way to get you there? Yeah. Uh, from there, we could start to lay out what makes sense. 1P, 3P, fulfilled, not fulfilled, split catalog, you know, where maybe some of your products make sense one way, but some of your other products make sense another way, depending on what you got. And once you lay all that out, the rest becomes just easy to execute because you've got the right plans in place. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, we've covered a lot of ground. It's been um, a really interesting conversation, starting with uh, talking about strategy and then some of the very practical things that any organization would need to do to be successful on Amazon. Any final words of advice? Man, I mean, I can't sum up advice in just a couple <laughs> words, but I mean, you got to start. So I'd say the, the first thing is just start. Like, don't assume that you got to know how to make money on the Amazon market to do it. Just know that it's important. Your customers are looking at it. Your B2B buyers are looking at it. And it's important that you have your brand controlled, your reputation controlled, if nothing else. Yeah, uh, because it's going to help other parts of your business that you'll never be able to measure. You know, I know marketing likes to measure everything. You're never going to measure the effectiveness of your catalog was right. And that's why the B2B buyer chose you and put you in that retail chain because they liked the reviews they saw on Amazon. They're never going to tell you that. You're never going to get that out of a survey, for example, but there, there's stuff like that that happens that does influence business. And so I believe it's there. Amazon's here to stay. It's not going away. You may as well figure out how your brand needs to look on Amazon versus waiting. Yeah. All right. Cozy up to the giant, right? But do it intelligently, I think is yeah. kind of what, what you'd say. Hey, yep. so William, this has been great. Appreciate your uh, joining us today. 
if people want to follow up with you, what's the best way for them to, uh, to connect? Um, well, amazia.com, A-M-A-Z-Z-I-A.com. They could send an inquiry that way. I'm accessible through LinkedIn, actually read and respond to all my own messages. William at Amazia is my email address. Hopefully one of those three ways is, I should be very easily reached through, through one of those three ways. Um, but, but I'd say that. Okay, that perfect. Well, hey, thanks so much for joining us on the program. Uh, timely topic, and I think you've really given us a sort of an expert view of sort of what you need to do if you're looking at e-commerce and particularly Amazon as a part of your future, which I think many companies who weren't thinking about that a year ago are thinking about it today. So great timely topic, and uh, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Mark. All right, well, with that, we'll close the session of the Practical CMO, and we'll see you next month.